0: My name is Tony Rosito. I am the chair of the Department of Architecture at Kennesaw State University. Yeah, uh, formerly Southern Poly.
1: Formerly Southern Poly, yes. There's still plenty of green uh, hexagons around the campus.
0: Uh, We try and keep some of it to remind us. (laughs) To remind us, yes, that you've been uh, merged. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, where are you from, Tony, originally? Originally I'm from New York. uh, That's where I was born and raised. um, In the construction industry. My grandfather owned I'm um, a very large construction company, so I grew up um, on uh, some of Manhattan's most famous uh, skyscrapers. Oh, really? Where yeah.
1: Where was his company based out of? Manhattan. Man- oh, in yeah, Manhattan? So what, what skyscraper projects? You say that, I have to ask.
0: Um, well, the original World Trade Center was a okay. key moment in my life. Um, I had been to my grandfather's office, and there was Yamasaki's rendering on the wall. Oh, wow. Uh, but it was before the building was built. So you must have been pretty young, because you're not much older than I am. Um, yeah, I was. I brought it in for show and tell, actually. Okay, yeah, that, makes, yeah, that sounds uh, about right. You know, told everybody, this is going to be the world's tallest building. That oh, that was would pretty been, exciting. You must have been pretty much the star that day. Yeah. So. Uh,
1: so what, what kind of contracting did your grandfather do? They
0: were general concrete contractors. So okay. they built um, buildings like Citicorp, Citicorp. Um, Mm. He originally, the first project he'd ever worked on was Rockefeller Center. Oh, wow. Um, Not as his own company, but.
1: uh, As working
0: for somebody else. Right, yeah, Yeah. and that's how they sort of got involved in that. In fact, um, Dick Concrete, Underhill, which is the company, um, were famous in New York. They they were the first ones to really market um, through trucks. So the cement mixers were painted like
1: Tonka toys. I never Uh, thought of that. He was the the, somebody was the first guy to put their company name on the side of their truck.
0: No, it wasn't company names. The trucks were blue and the mixers were white with blue and um, some other color. I can't remember the other color. Polka dots. Polka dots. So it was. (laughs) So they ran through strong branding effort there. Very strong branding effort. Yeah, very visual. When the trucks came down, you knew exactly who it was, and they were fun to look at.
1: Huh. So I'm, I'm I'm curious to know if that was. If that consciously led you into architecture, or was it later on you kind of looked back and said, maybe that was what first
0: first got it me? It was kind of in my DNA. Okay. Um, I was a, a generation when Lego was very big, mm-hmm. and so um, I used to play with Lego all the time, and I used to design buildings with Lego. Yeah. With uh, the roof come off, and you could see the inside. And I remember we had some people from the office over, and uh, so I was five years old. And I was asked, so do you want to be an architect? And I didn't even know what the word architect was. Right. And I asked, what does an architect do? And he said, well, an architect designs buildings. And, and I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Mm. That sounds good. Yeah. Um,
1: so where did you end up going to? I know you went, did you get your
0: doctorate. Cause... Uh, well, I went to University of Florida. Um, oh, that's a big we move had, from yeah. New York. Not really. It was, for me, it, I think a lot of people think it was sort of uh, going far away. But we used to vacation in Florida every winter. Okay. Uh, so Florida was a sort of home away from home. That mm-hmm. was with my grandfather and my parents. Okay. And at the time, Florida um, was the largest undergraduate program. It was fairly well known. Mm-hmm. It was a very strong program, not to say that it's not today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a natural fit. It's still a very large program. I know. Still a very large program. I know program, that. Yeah. from am just my friends from Florida. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a great experience. I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I moved here to Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I worked for um, Cooper Carey. Okay. Uh, who, and that was a really exciting moment in architectural history because it was shortly after Walter Carey had created the IDP program.
1: Uh, and the intern, development, the intern program. development program okay yeah
0: and he had been very instrumental in that and so at the time cooper carry was the major firm that was implementing okay. that so you when you went to work for cooper carry at that point they introduced you this is you know this is idp mm-hmm. you will work in all of these areas and you were basically guaranteed within the first 3 years to fulfill almost all of those requirements oh
1: that's a great time to be at cooper Carey. Yeah. cuz for for people who don't know it's um It used to be, and I think it's still this way in engineering, you just worked for a certain amount of years, and then you could sit for your licensing exam. Mm -hmm. And I guess there were probably people who weren't doing enough rounded things, so they developed IDP.
0: It it really was. There was no rules or regulations for that. So you worked for years, and then you went and sat for the exam. And IDP was really about a self-policing of the field so that when people came out of school... Mm -hmm they could be guaranteed. There was a a mechanism for the intern to argue, I need a a more rounded experience to prepare me for ARE. Um, And so they had really been very instrumental in doing that. They, at the time, were a very big firm, um, Mm -hmm. well over 200 people. Uh, They were the second most profitable behind um, SOM. Oh, really? uh, And they were the first to introduce CAD, we had two big CAD rooms. And really, there was just each one had the one big gigantic computer in it. Right. And if you wanted to be trained on CAD, you could be trained on CAD. Computer-aided yeah, drafting. Yeah, those were the very first. And the, there weren't architects who were running the CADs. That was really interesting. They were people with computer degrees. Okay. And the architects would do the drawings. And we would bring them in. And the computer uh, personnel, fac- uh, not faculty, they staff, would translate them into the into the computer
1: and it's kind of like my uh, my dad was an underwriter and he always talks about the mimeograph which was a mm. preface before a fax where he'd have to write the memo and then take it to the man in the mimeograph room or the woman yeah. and she would then type it out and mm-hmm. and send it across the the
0: line it was very much like that it, i mean it's it's hard to imagine in you know that scenario versus what it is today mm-hmm. or to even think back that that's um, within a lifetime,
1: well, it's one of those things too. When you're young and you come to something, you think it's always been that way. And yeah. so, I was in undergraduate school while you were getting your doctorate at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. So you actually taught a history breakout session I yeah. was in, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize IDP was that that new. I'd kind was, of thought yeah. it had always been around. Yeah,
0: no, that was yeah. We tend to think because it's so a part of the culture now. Oh yeah, but it was really um, early '80s. So it's really, I mean, now it's 40 years old. Yeah. But the reality is is it was very much needed at that time. It was was shocking. Not everybody was following that. Yeah,
1: and um, it's another example of, I think, how a lot of Atlanta firms are innovative in quiet ways that we don't think about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's It's sad because I think most of us have forgotten where that started, right. right? it was it was an, an Atlanta architect in mm-hmm. a well-known Atlanta architectural firm. yeah, who said there's a fundamental problem here, yeah, and created change in their office, got it adopted nationally. It's become part of and ingrained within our culture. Mm-hmm. Um and we've sort of forgotten who the person was that started that, what firm it was and and really why it was there,
1: yeah, what was necessary and to this day na- this day, um Young architects right out of school use that. I'll mm-hmm. I'll talk to them and they'll even. I mean, everybody gets just caught up in trying to get the work done, and it's very helpful for them to say, "I need to get some experience in uh, construction administration." Can I come with you on this site to, yeah. to, to see this? And it's it it helps kind of everybody steward the profession.
0: It, we didn't necessarily level the playing field, but it gave the intern something in an annual review. To, yeah. To base an argument on. Um, and also to evaluate whether or not the firm that they were working for was really supporting them in mm-hmm. their goals.
1: Mm-hmm. Just kind of an outside source. Mm-hmm. Um, so were you planning on then going into architecture? Are you, are you a licensed architect? I should just no, sure. actually, that's okay.
0: a, a strain. I'm a victim of, <laughs> of the economy. Uh, oh, okay. Most too often. But, um, so I worked in Atlanta for uh, several years. And mm-hmm. I had never planned on teaching, or being involved in academia. That okay. was my plan. Um, and then I went to the uh, University of Illinois in Chicago for my master's degree. Uh, is that the Circle Campus? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been called Circle for a long time, but yeah. Do you know what the story is behind the Circle uh, Campus? Because now? there's a, an interchange by the highway, and the school absolutely hated that whole oh my gosh! Category. They were named after a highway interchange. Yeah. Um, well, it was, that's actually a nickname, but it's the one that has consistently has stuck. stuck. Yeah. Okay, um, and that was in just that was just a mind-opening experience. Stanley Tigerman was the director at the time. Okay, and so uh, he was a brilliant educator and a brilliant school leader, and uh, accessible. Um, he would bring in people with very diverse attitudes and definitions of architecture and asked them to teach side-by-side. In side, okay. some cases put him in the same class. So. Um, and it was deliberate. He, he didn't want anyone to be indoctrinated. He believed very strongly that he wanted students to see people battle the ideas out mm-hmm. and choose their own path. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was really brilliant. And he would bring in some of the world's most famous architects. They were all his friends. Yeah. Um, they would socialize, you know. So, you know, Peter Eisenman was another one of my faculty, Catherine Ingram, um, Jeffrey Kipnis, uh, a whole group of them, one after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really great time because there was so much exploration, so much questioning.
1: Uh, and his. And forgive me, is that campus particularly well known for its architecture program, or is it more? Um, I don't know what the word is. Well, I'm thinking. The architecture of program was very well is known. It's at very well known, At that program. time, it was okay. one of the strongest programs okay.
0: around. Uh, Stanley retired from that program quite some time ago. Okay. Um, but it was a very strong campus, and it had been designed by Bruce Graham, and the buildings were rather interesting, brutalist kind of constructions. So, mm hmm. Um, it's a very interesting
1: place, and and you were working on your master's there, I guess. I got my master's
0: degree there. Yeah, um, and then the plan had been I was going to come back, work for two years, and, and pursue a PhD, largely because Peter had had sort of talked me into getting a PhD.
1: So you'd gotten, um, so you had a, a personal aside with Peter Eisenman, and
0: he was one of my teachers. He and, oh, you so your first semester, enough, yeah. Um, he and Robert Somol were both uh, they team taught the studio. Okay, I'm not yeah. familiar
1: with Robert.
0: Well, Robert Toml, um wrote a very famous article on projective architecture, which sort of was the end of the sort of critical theory.
1: Projective architecture being, um, if you could do it in simple words, if not in we can simple move on. words.
0: So, critical theory was really looking at at architecture as a discourse and looking at its relationship to um, the sort of self critique of architecture. What is architecture
1: and its relationship to other discourses? Um, and that seems like a very Eisenman. Well, the
0: well, that whole era. Yeah, and so it's
1: all kind of about this is the conversation that's going on and how do we right. add to that, con- maybe it matters physically or not.
0: Right, yeah. And then um, uh, Robert, who was very much involved in that as a sort of next generation, um, wrote a paper, I believe it was with Sarah Whiting, and uh, they challenged that. They said it was the end of that, that it was time that architects started getting back to the practice of architecture that real projects mm-hmm. how do you really solve the architect the problems of the world yeah i mean this is an consistent back and forth through history right yeah I mean, the, yeah the avant- the early avant-gardes because there've been many avant garde we always tend to think of you know the avant-gardes as expressionism and de stiel and constructivism but they were criticized by the next generation as being aesthetic moves that really weren't solving problems yeah um, by the next generation. That was the new Socklokites became the sort of general idea of architecture mm-hmm. uh, for 40 years. And that was basically what he was arguing. They were arguing that, you know, we've, we've talked enough about the problems of society and its relationship to architecture. How do we actually get the projects? This is really where we have to focus.
1: Right, right. And that's probably a healthy kind of swinging back and forth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it gets... Uh, I, I noticed that in Atlanta when I first started working, I worked... Um, Strangely enough, I think I ended up in architecture school because mm-hmm. of the down economy, because no, let, fewer people were applying. Um, and I won't I won't fake false modesty and say my grades weren't good, but they weren't up to the quality of a lot of Georgia Tech students when I went mm-hmm. to Georgia Tech. And there were just less people applying, but I started working in firms almost right away mm-hmm. because the people said, if you want to work, you better start, because it's so competitive, and of course the economy turned around. Um, but you do see that push pull between having to get it done and also, are we really thinking about are we just turning out junk here at fast food restaurants or are we
0: well, I think adding the value we can? Well, yeah, I think architecture is a very powerful field. I also think it can be a very weak field. Yeah. Right. So there are real world problems mm-hmm. and there are architectural inventions that can help to solve or mitigate some of those problems. Right. And the question really is are we approaching architecture critically is there a certain criticality in what we do or are we doing it by rote you might even say kind of at least thoughtfulness on a basic level like
1: are we just at least thinking about this
0: and i you know there's there's the client who's writing you a check Mm -hmm. right who has their needs there's the future occupant who has their needs there's the neighborhood in which you're building in there's the larger society and 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 what's really running through that and the architect has to negotiate through all of those yeah And I
1: think, and it's also my experience of of working, there are a lot of architects who don't do any work that will ever be published, but I think do work in that critical sphere where they are aware of the compromises they're making and aware of where they can gain and add to the process.
0: Yeah, and it's not about being famous or being a star architect. It's about whether or not the work that you're doing is really Making a positive change,
1: yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Yeah, it's that kind of is. Is it a value added process, Um, and it can be. So uh, that's a great um, person to tell you to get a doctorate, and so then you were looking around at doctorates Yeah, it never even occurred to me. Did he? Did he? There's something specific that caused him to say that, or was it just kind of?
0: No, I. I think, you know, it's kind of funny. I think I talk a lot. And so I was always talking a lot in Stanley's class, and he was always recording everything. And when Peter came to teach that semester, I was put into his class, and he said, I've been told you're one of the leaders. <laughs> <laughs> so he expected me to talk a lot. And, um, and then, you know, at the end, he and, and Robert Summel both were, you know, uh, I know you want to become a, uh, an architect, but you should really pursue a Ph.D., And the reality is they opened up a whole new world for me in -hmm. terms of understanding what architecture could be. But they fascinated me because these were people um, who were practicing. They had very successful careers. Mm -hmm. They were famous. They were in the history books. Doing stuff all over the world. All over the world at that time. They were really the first that were really doing that. And yet they were coming into a classroom and in, in particularly in the case of Peter Eisenman, who lived and practiced in New York, was flying out to Chicago every other week to spend three days. Right. And when, he, when, when Peter did that, he didn't just come in and teach the class and leave. He spent three days with you. We went to the movies together. We did all kinds of things together. So he was, you know, I didn't understand why were you doing this. And when I asked, they, I got the same response from all of them. They all said, I am who I am because I do this they argued that keeping the connection with academia, working with students outside the confines of practice allowed them to explore ideas, keep themselves fresh, that they always felt they were getting more than they were giving. Um, and it was a continuous learning process. And I think that then, you know, when I always said you should pursue that, mm-hmm. um, that's when I began to think maybe I wanted to teach part-time and I knew enough to know that if you want to teach part-time seriously mm-hmm. then you know you have to have a PhD right And so that's why I chose to go for the PhD.
1: So why and why Georgia Tech uh, maybe out of
0: selfish interest I want to hear
1: why Georgia Tech?
0: Well you know uh, um, there might have been a lot of better choices maybe particularly for what I was looking for. Yeah but I had moved I had moved away to Chicago mm-hmm. from Atlanta. Uh, when right, I moved right, yeah. back, it was a strange move back, you, you know, two years doesn't seem like a lot, but everything had changed. Social had changed. Especially at that age. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and at that point I wasn't so sure I wanted to pick up and move yet again and go through that. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, let me see more locally. Mm-hmm. And, and tech certainly had a, a good program at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first started getting interested in thinking about it, I think they were much stronger in history theory than when I actually got there, um, and that obviously has changed. Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. It's also just interesting the way, because it seems like academia has been a good place for me. I mean, certainly as a, was probably a freshman, mm-hmm. as it was, it was, I was very, I don't impress isn't the word, but very uh, eyes open by just uh, sitting in class and talking. And certainly what's happened here at Southern Polycom Kennesaw State's mm-hmm. been really good, which you've been a part of. So it's kind of interesting how getting down and grinding, the, yeah. the, the way the world works moves you in a direction that sometimes is a, is a good fit for you.
0: Yeah, and, that, and that's, you know, even how I got into teaching at Tech was a strange one because I didn't teach the first year I was there. just worked and um, researched and Yeah, I just, I just worked on my classes. Um, and And... One of the classes came open as a mm-hmm. preceptorial first, and someone said, terrible. "Well, you know, you should do this." Mm-hmm. And uh, okay, so I started teaching, and at that point, students were like, "You have a great teaching methodology," and I had, I was like, "What are you talking?" about? Just like the other <laughs> conversation, no I'm just talking. I don't I'm know. just talking. Yeah, yeah, I'm just talking about something that I love and having a great time. Um, and then I started, you know, teaching more regularly there, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Betty Dowling had gone on. On leave and had recommended I replace her that year, and um, okay. and that's when I took over the the larger lectures and everything, and then uh, a position came open here, uh, and at that time, my thought was very pragmatic. Uh, I realized that if you really wanted to get a job in academia that you really had to have experience and you really needed to, to branch out to teach more than just your research. Right, right. Um, and so I took the position and it was also just a great money. You know, much better than much your preceptor. Three money. times what I was making at yeah, Georgia Tech. Yeah. Um, and at that point really the people that I was close with at Georgia Tech started thinking, saying, you know, look, you're a good teacher and you should really think you can't really have two careers. You're going to succeed in one or you're going to succeed in the other and try and make a choice.
1: And the two careers are the reference to?
0: Practice and and, and education. Yeah. And I think my faculty and, and colleagues at Georgia Tech really felt that um, education, I was very strong in education.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: so I didn't come to this position and leave. Practice. It was very hard for me, actually. I mean, from the age of five, I wanted to be a practicing architect. Yeah. It was a real soul searching to move beyond that.
1: Well, that's why I kind of hesitated to ask if you're a registered architect, because that does become such a, a, a point of pride or so forth. Mm-hmm. But it's also oftentimes speaks more to the, the career path that's found mm-hmm. you and, and how that's gone along.
0: Well, I mean, I would have done that. I had had, you know, with Cooper Carey, I'd had, you know, four and a half years of training um, in three and a half years, um, so I had all of the IDP requirements. But mm-hmm. at the time, there was a requirement you had to work one year full time with benefits for an architectural <laughs> firm. And there was a distinction there. Yeah. And but when I graduated and moved back, it was in the middle of a, a recession. So I worked for two years, but um, Georgia wouldn't accept any of the hours. Right, and right. The irony was, I was working for Ger- I was working for
1: Cooper Carey. <laughs>
0: oh, you were in a in another but state. My, yeah, and uh, I was working for Cooper Carey. We're back at the same firm, but I was not a full time employee. I was what was considered a consultant. That's And so if funny. you were a consultant, then they weren't giving you IDP credit for it at That's, the time. Huh. So I, so, so weird. At that point, it was two years, and I had, that was the plan to go for the PhD, and then I went for the PhD, and then once I took the full time job at SPSU. There was no way to go back.
1: Mm-hmm. What was that? What was that original teaching position? Just a studio professor? Or? No, it
0: was. I was. It was a full time position. I was teaching studio, uh, and two classes a, s- a semester. Mm-hmm. That was a big heavy load. Um, so that's like six hours of teaching. Twelve hours of studio yeah. and another six hours of of history lectures.
1: And that adds up to eighteen hours, but it's a lot more than Absolutely. eighteen hours. Yeah, and at
0: the time. SPSU was kind of growing, and so we had lectures of like 50 students in the classes at that time. So It was, okay. a, it was a lot. I was, I was oh, covering yeah. 120 students a semester.
1: So yeah, it was kind of like the, the, the public school situation when the community starts growing. They just start piling trailers, and there's never enough space. Or there's never enough faculty to deal with all oh, yeah. the students coming right, in. Yeah. So, yeah, so you're working your way up at a, at a very growing, rapidly growing school.
0: Yeah. When I came in, we were about 150 students total in the program. We then started to expand and grow Mm -hmm. um, shortly after I'd come. We had gotten our first accreditation, and and it was a five year accreditation, which was very unusual. There were only two schools that had ever done that in their first pass at the time. Yeah. And I had come in right after that one. Okay. We were coming in like two years later, we were going to have our second accreditation. Um, And we started to grow. We were only eight faculty at the time. Oh, my God. And in the I building, which is where we have first year now, and all of them were up there in what's now the first year studio. Right. Um, the whole place. Yeah. And then um, we moved or we commissioned the current building that we're in or one of the the main building, building and the architecture building. Mm-hmm. And when we moved into this building we really saw a huge explosion. We went from you know, 200 to 350, almost 400, a little bit more than that. Um, and then we outgrew this building. Uh, we were supposed to grow into it in 10 years. Within three years, we were maxed out and we needed more space, so we went back to our old building. Right, um, right. Yeah, and then we expanded that building um, and then renovated the original. And you built a, a new
1: addition off of that. Yeah. Their second yeah. year
0: studio design two building. Which so. has got a, a pretty cool brick pattern on the side of it. It does. It does, actually. Cooper Carey, that's uh, the irony. Cooper Carey did that building. Yeah, so yeah. It was a complete circle for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of. They're, they're, well, they're
1: working for you now. That's kind of nice. Um, yeah. So I guess we could talk a little bit about how architecture education works and how you guys do it at Kennesaw State. It was a few years ago, the I think it was the AIA chapters organized this, and it was really good to see the, the three schools of architecture come and talk about kind of their mm-hmm. pedagogical approaches and just just kind of open that up for the rest of the architecture profession. And that would have been Georgia Tech and Southern Poly and slash Kennesaw and SCAD, who's mm-hmm. based out of Savannah. So mm-hmm. we don't see them that often. It's a long drive. Yeah. But it was great to see that how everybody was working towards the same requirements of accreditation are very different
0: well you know NAB has its student performance criteria and that that establishes a baseline in architectural education Mm -hmm. in the United States but it really is very uh, limited I mean from an academic perspective its definition of architecture is fairly succinct I think historically and certainly in the contemporary world, definitions of architecture are much more much broader and more diverse. Okay. And that that allows space for different programs and it's fa- and their faculty. Right. To sort of define that what I would say really more comprehensive understanding of what the role of architecture is. Right. And so you take that baseline of the NAB criteria, and you add to it, and you know the, the trick then is really building a faculty who have a vision, uh, who are willing to move to a certain direction, and they define that. They define the pedagogy. They add to that program and they enrich the NAB program, and that's really what creates the distinction from one program to another.
1: The, the kind of the, the culture that builds up between your particular faculty members is mm-hmm. sort of. It reminds me of an expression that somebody said that uh, culture will will defeat tactics every time, and yeah. so yeah, if you don't have the right people and the right attitudes,
0: yeah, I mean we've we've worked closely here with people who I all thought were brilliant, um, but maybe their definition or wasn't the same; they didn't feel they fit in. Yeah, um, and you know, as a chair, you're you want all your faculty to succeed. Yeah. And to succeed, they really have to feel like they're a part of something and making a major contribution, and that the entire system is supporting them. So, that's a yeah. it's important to get the right mix of people.
1: Uh, yeah, and I think you bring up a good point. Sometimes it's not about being bad or good, it's just kind of does it fit for whatever reason. Yeah, if, so. if
0: the program is moving in one direction and someone's research or interests or their specialization is in another, they become marginalized within that system, and yeah. I don't think that's a healthy environment to work in so yeah the trick is to find the right environment
1: yeah um and the thing that I found so interesting about undergrad too was not was that at that point in your life your brain's developing a lot mm. and you're expanding and and um when I think about the people's unappreciation or for building for the the Breuer downtown Breuer library mm-hmm. building and it's a difficult building to kind of like I think of myself when I saw the uh, Farnsworth house I thought mm-hmm. of it as a uh, a concrete and glass sandwich is mm-hmm. just, and, and of course, you learn a little bit, and then you're, you begin to understand, and then suddenly you can't imagine not being kind of blown away by mm-hmm. it also.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, in our construction of of what we teach and what we do here, we have a long tradition that comes from the institution before uh, we became architecture. We were an AET program. A D would be architecture. Architecture, engineering, technology. Okay. And, you know, that program was consistent with the rest of the campus and very hands-on and applied. Sort of polytechnic and... Mm, Yeah, well, it wasn't a polytechnic at the time, but, yeah. And so the engineering programs and the A.E.T. program were very applied. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was really the sort of signature of what we were, and that certainly carried over, and it's still a bedrock for... We are. We still believe in hands on education and Mm -hmm. and approaching that. Mm -hmm. Um, That sort of undergirds the entire uh, curriculum and and all of the sequences. But, you know, when you're dealing, to your point specifically, when you're dealing with students that are coming into an architectural program, generally speaking, unless you're coming from very specific locations in the country, um, awareness of architecture, awareness of civic space. Um, is is pretty naive um, and non-existent. So one of the things we find, and that's very important for us, and particularly in the first year, is um, to teach the incoming student how to see. We call it observing. Okay. And so there's a whole bunch of observation exercises. And and so what would be an observation exercise? Well, we'll take students to civic space and ask them to diagram how people use it, how they're moving through those kinds of spaces, um, to really start um, studying materiality and texture. What are the acoustics in the space? Yeah. So that they can become aware of architectural space and and urban space um, through the mechanisms of design. Mm -hmm. How are these these spaces, uh, how are these characteristics of the spaces actually existing? How could you alter those characteristics. I mean, that's really the palette of the architect. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to to get them first, you, before you can teach them how to manipulate them for whatever conceptual reasons you might or pragmatic or programmatic reasons, you first have to teach them to, to see them in space. Yeah, so really,
1: and that, that's something that's hard to get people who haven't studied, I guess, anything, but architecture, because mm-hmm. it relates to what we do, is if you haven't... L- Look at it consciously. Sometimes you don't see it. It mm-hmm. seems like it's a big part of it. Is just recording how the world out there is and how people. Yeah. And I, I suppose you also try to send them to to good buildings to start with to study this.
0: Well, actually, sometimes it's good buildings and sometimes it's not so good buildings. Right? I mean, you know, you want to see. Sometimes the best learn is a fail, right? Um, mm-hmm. And to say to take a student to a building in town. And say, look, this building doesn't address the street, doesn't address the sidewalk. Do you find it welcoming? Do you find it um, approachable? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's funny because that idea of being conscious of your space and conscious of your awareness and include into your environment was actually because you mentioned earlier Breuer, right? Right, right. It's a brutalist and. Right now we're in a historical phase where everyone wants to bulldoze every brutalist building. Yeah, But that's right. exactly what the brutalists were about, right? They had recognized that so many people walk blindly through their environments day to day. They weren't paying any attention. And so this, this philosophical concept of authenticity started to infiltrate architectural thought. Okay. So the use of materials as they are and exposing them for what they are were, were designed to sort of make you aware of that. So, yeah.
1: You know. So the, instead of the um, the building that looks like a stonemason, um, oh, I'm trying to think of it, a historic side, a classical building that is really, let's say, plaster and wood is mm-hmm. somehow contributing to that ignorance of our world. And somehow the, the, the conflict in the brutalist building between the materiality that we don't expect mm-hmm. but then...
0: And confronting it. And confronting yeah. it,
1: but then also getting to know it. And I think that's where the the, the, the Breuer building, and people might have different p- opinions, but it has a very nice kind of massing and forming to it as you enter that shifts from a very monumental to a surprisingly well,
0: you know, pedestrian human scale. That's an interesting building because historians are not sure whether it was the second to last or the last because there are two buildings by Breuer built at the exact same time, right when he died. Right. Um, in that building, the interior has been so gutted and, and, and butchered right. that the spatial experience is completely lost. But um, from the outside, there is a beauty to its form, its proportions. Yeah, The very um, authentic materials, um, the way in which he's manipulating the texture of the concrete mm. that's on that building, the play of solid versus void is very interesting. There's a small outdoor staircase um, on, I guess it's the north side, which the sidewalk, you don't even look at it, but it's actually made of, of, of solid blocks of granite. Um, really beautiful in the sense of, you know, what he's really doing. Yeah. With this secondary kind of component that everybody walks by and never looks at. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a shame because that's a, that's it really is a great building, but yeah. we don't pay much attention to it. And that was exactly... What they were talking about. They're trying to. In, we walk through our environment without really observing it, without being aware of it. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that is that's interesting. As a kind of a first step, I guess you could probably use almost any model of intervening in the world as first mm-hmm. looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned diagramming also, which I always think is such an important part to architecture that people that maybe don't fully understand what a diagram. A diagram is.
0: is yeah. I, 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 diagrams are really about conveying data that is not always visible I um, making it visible and present in a way that we can understand it yeah um, today we might use the term datascape but a diagram is is a little bit more important in the sense that you're trying to take information that's relevant and make it spatial and visual mm-hmm. because in in the end all of the, components that we look at that that make up the complexity of architecture are are difficult and most of them are not spatial yeah they're not something that you can look at they're not empirical and so you have to do the research you have to be able to diagram it so you can tease out the spatial components of that Right, and then once you have that, then you can understand how architecture can be. It, you can intervene with architecture. Right, right, and oftentimes you can make the invisible visible through architecture mm-hmm. if you understand that. And diagrams are a means of moving from ideation to physicality. Right, right.
1: Um, so it's it's I think that's all those things. I think it's an interesting point. When we think of buildings, we think of the walls and the doors and the mm-hmm. rooms. But those are such kind of the last components conceptually that come together. Right. Yeah. You start with how do you something is very basic. How do you use the space? What's your organization structure? But some of it gets much more closer to human nature and well, our basis.
0: It's human relationships. Okay. Right? When Hegel wrote a hundred pages on architecture, right? Um, I his aesthetics. Um, he argued that architecture was a sort of physicality of, of social ritual and so you started with the ritual and then you decide what's the shape of the ritual and then you create how are you going to cover the ritual and then how are you supporting the roof Mm -hmm. and shingle built off of that his architectural theory was basically the same idea that you're starting with a social event yeah um interpersonal communication the way in which people come together and in mid-century aldo vanek made the same argument team 10 um, uh, Aldo Winnick Yat Bakima mm-hmm. Smithsons uh, basically challenged Siam on their definition of architecture as rational and functionalist and said no these spaces are the spaces of social socialization of human right. interaction uh, that's where you really have to start and those things aren't physical yeah no, you know. those had to be f- in the '70s, I believe, when they were—that uh, was the 1950s, actually, the '50s, a bit earlier okay. Than that. Right, yeah. Well, I guess
1: that makes sense. But that that the, that group, which we don't talk about as much, when we talk about the high modernists and the, mm. the
0: the three, four gods of Mies, right? The the early modernists, and and even that, you know, the the four gods of, of whatever modern architecture. It's it's kind of insulting because you're forgetting all the ones who were doing actually, in some cases, even more interesting work yeah you know Ernst May's urbanism was far more sophisticated nuanced uh, and influential than Corbus ever was Uh, that's J.J.P. Wood's public housing is second to none Mm -hmm. in terms of the sensitivity to the individual within the collective yeah uh, detailing within affordable housing I mean that's a lesson that every modern architect should turn back to
1: well then that's such was it there's, this, there's this kind of two major ideas There's One is this this idea, that's, which the high modernists also embrace, of moving away from architecture being something that served the wealthy and the powerful, mm-hmm. and it, that can bring value to all of us. But in the Smithson's and the other ones that came along was this, I don't know what it would be, Is stating something that was actually very obvious, that it's not just about the efficiency of how pieces go together, yeah. but that human beings are these kind of complex characters that have these rational mammalian brains stamped on top of these irrational lizard brains and we need to <laughs> yeah. d- address that and there's not necessarily a rule book for doing
0: that. You know it's it's interesting because the new cyclecate came about this new objectivity in the 1920s and 30s it was a byproduct of World War 1 and a little bit after World War 2 when there was so much devastation and so much people Uh, need for housing that, and not much money. You had to figure out a way to increase the standard of living for the maximum amount of people Mm -hmm. with the minimum amount of funds. So you look at architecture very objectively, very economically. I see. You try and develop architectural solutions to that problem. What Team 10 challenged was that's all fine and that's necessary, but... Humanity has other needs, and you don't start with that, you start with the other.
1: Yeah, and that always reminds me of the. Um, They're the, both part of it, it's not yeah. one or the other. It's, yeah. The, the Corbusier quote that a, a building is a home for living, and I always thought that was kind of cold. And, and somewhere. A machine I, for living. A machine for living. Yeah. Uh, I mean, could you
0: imagine who would want to live in a machine?
1: Yeah. Um, but somehow I made my peace with Corbusier by thinking of a slide as a machine for playing. Like, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. And, and Corbusier probably would have uh, walked out on me if I made that analogy to his house, but it worked for me.
0: I find his work, I, when I lecture on him, it's interesting to me because the early work is so rhetorical and it makes almost no sense philosophically because he speaks about Cartesian skyscrapers and rationality and the universal, Yeah. Um, while at the same time throwing in rhetorical references to nature. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't seem to be in any way aware of the epistemological conflict between these this dialectic within his own writing in his own work if you look at it you know m- macro you see much more early abstractions and universalist propositions about architecture and definitions of humanity and then he moves towards throughout his career more towards a more mystical a more spiritual kind yeah. of understanding where he's relying not on these abstracts um, but more on vernaculars and localities to generate that work. And yeah. I think that, you know, collectively you know, a better way to look at Corbu is his entire overa and the extremes and win one career to see the extremes of architectural thought, Yeah, you know, is, is, is fascinating, if not troubling.
1: Yeah, <laughs> troubling for our own futures <laughs> and where we may end up and what youthful sins we'll have to uh, account for later on. Right. Um, so, uh, I think we could talk about architect. The thing about architectural education or architectural history is it touches on everything that architects still think on constantly. Whenever mm-hmm. you're you're working or you have a moment to to daydream.
0: Well, I mean, I, you know, I think when we're talking about architectural education, we're talking about many different things. I think one of them, at, at the most base level, is training people to work in the profession. Yeah. Right. To be competent. Um, to be competent. I mean, w- what a horrible thing to define education. <laughs> to be competent. That's a th- I mean, it's such a low standard. Oh. But it is one of the baselines. And then the question is, what are you doing beyond that? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, what we have to do in education is to teach students to be inventive, creative, and imaginative. To teach them how to collaborate, because that's what the world is in the 21st century. Yeah. But more importantly, I think and I think this is incredibly important in the United States right now, we have to teach them to be leaders because I think the economic system tends to want to push increasingly architecture in the United States into a service industry. Yeah. And I think that that's wrong largely because the educational system in architecture itself is, is one of the best. And it's one of the best because it teaches the broadest spectrum from art to science. Mm-hmm. And it puts it all into a single mind. Yeah. And that person has an expertise that really they shouldn't be subservient. They should really be looking for answers and assisting people. We <laughs> yeah, have the phone
1: ringing. Right, yeah. Um, go ahead and get it. Um, I'll pause for a second.
0: Um. No, but I, th- I think what we really have to teach students that their role is to listen to what a client needs but to also suggest to a client how to make that project more significant.
1: Yeah, there's, um, my dad would say to me, meaning in full in full well that the client's always right, but you're also legally a professional, but you're also an expert, and you have an obligation to bring that expertise to your client's service.
0: I, I would say you have a, a, an ethical obligation to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a client will look at you and they may be looking from what they personally want or from a, an economic perspective. Um, they, their understanding of what their needs might be limited. Mm-hmm. Um, it's your job to sit there and really listen and to say, what does this person really need? Right. right. What are their limitations financially? And how can we give them more than what they're asking for? Right. Right? And sometimes what we're giving... Through architectural invention, is not just what that client needs, but maybe how that client can give to others. Right. You know, and I think that's that's the leadership we have to teach.
1: And then, and and there's in what they're saying. And you find this with clients. Excuse me. They don't always have the words to say it, or they haven't mm-hmm. experienced it, and so there's something hidden in what they're saying that you right. kind of have to dig out. And then, and and sometimes they may be, if you haven't done that right, they'll be frustrated with you, even though you've given them what they've asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it adds to that idea that you're not just a service that's uh, hands that will draw for them, but that you have some real knowledge.
0: Yeah, you know, I, and again, the client, whether it's a developer, or I mean, is not really trained to to observe. That's right? true. So, in a way, what they ask you for is is largely what they are familiar with. Yeah, um, and yet, architecture is not something that is really replicatable because the sites are never the same. Right, and physically, so, every
1: even so if it's a McDonald's, it's still, it's a, still different a different property. Site, right? yeah.
0: So again, you can see things in that locality yeah. that, wow, there's this opportunity that we could add this. Yeah. And wouldn't that make this project incredible? Right. Wouldn't that bring an amenity to the site, the neighborhood, the community, right. to the user of the building? Could that be marketable? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, how could that improve the portfolio of the developer? Right, I, and to sit there and not provide that service is, I think, an ethical fail. Right, I professional think failure.
1: I think it's a cheap out too, because when you,
0: it's easier to not do that.
1: Right, when you actually do that, you're actually asking the client to engage and pay attention with you, and and that makes it harder because there are times where they will, when they begin to, and they can learn quickly. They begin to pick that up. They'll fight back with you, mm-hmm. and sometimes they'll be right. And that's, that can really mess with your schedule for the day. <laughs> but you end up providing great
0: service. Well, I think the best architects, and this is not the most famous, but, but the best architects are able to see in the project what the client needs and they're asking you for. Yeah. But all the things, the potentialities of the project, mm-hmm. and they put it on the table, Yeah. and they're able to show the client... Yes, we can do this. That's not the problem. But we could also do this.
1: Right. Without without affecting anything else you want right. to do.
0: And and that is really where the value is. Yeah. You know, once you can you have that skill set, once you're doing that, that relationship with that client transforms everything. It really there's a trust that gets built in there. I know what I need to do. I know what I wanted to do, but I need you to find the thing that's going to make this project that much more significant
1: for me. And it, it's at that point, too, it becomes actually really fun, and everybody gets yes. very excited and very because dedicated. it's not the same thing. I mean, yeah. you
0: know, one of the problems of our profession and our training is that we have the storehouse of typologies on our head, right? Which is c- collective knowledge and expertise over time, mm-hmm. which is great. But, it's your phone now. That's my um, phone. but it also tends to distract us, right? We tend to default. So again, you have to get back to that observance to see how does that typology get disturbed each time? Yeah, we reinvent architecture each time to make something of significance in that location at that moment for that client, for that neighborhood. Um, So we really have an urban environment of moments. Well, and, really worthwhile.
1: Yeah, and sometimes that that design to me feels more like bending myself to the project than the other way around. Mm. You have this kind of moment, like in the end of uh, the Big Lebowski, and you think, Oh my God, my, I've just been really uptight about this. I've been <laughs> those typologies kind of get in the way, and, yeah. you, re- you're, and you realize eh, that doesn't have to be that way. It I've doesn't. just
0: decided it has to be that way. They are general parameters to help us yeah. understand the problem. They are not the solutions. Yeah. You know,
1: yeah. And I, I, I thought the other thing to go back before the, our phone started ringing was it the interesting idea that I heard people when I first started in school in the 90s talk about our problem as architects is we're generalist mm-hmm. which is it's harder to, to find the value but I think the point you were making is that actually that's 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 where the leadership comes in is that you know yeah. a little bit about what
0: everybody does right and and in the end it, it might be a generalist Education, which you know, Vitruvius from the very beginning tells us that's what oh, it needs yeah. to be. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that the product is generalist. Yeah. Right. I mean, the generalist allows you to find the particularity mm-hmm. in the universal, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. tease that out. Yeah. To make something unique and special um, that transforms our experience of the urban space. Yeah. Um, and to make that that and a real human experience.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. If you go back and look at, I, I went back we were going to do a series of, of talks about important buildings in architectural history, so and I went and I, Vitruvius, so it's like the Parthenon, and then it's Vitruvius, and I was just like, this is a book, do I really want to read this again? <laughs> but I did read reread the first chapter and it's amazing how closely modern architectural education kind of mirrors the program he laid out. Now, we don't care so much about humors mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing anymore, no, but,
0: but... You know, I, uh, again, going back to Alderweinich, because Alderweinich made this statement that we had to find what were the universal constants in history mm-hmm. and what are, how did they relate to the particularities of our moments in time? Yeah. And so you really do have to look at history and say, what are the constants of what architecture is, what humans need, how we occupy space, the nature of human relationships? Mm-hmm. And then you have to also understand that in relationship to a given culture, a given time, different technologies, you know, right and and specifics of social interactions at that moment for that client, for that group, um, and it's that balance between the two the negotiation between the two yeah,
1: and in that that fine balance, there's never quite the one solution, but you find something yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a really good place to end. I think to start with the the <laughs> echoes of history up to today and moving into the future, right. Um, so yeah, best of of everything to you guys as you move forward into this yeah. new era with Kennesaw State, which is a year old
0: um, Well, actually, officially, the first full merged semester is this month.
1: Okay, wow so yeah.
0: Um, yeah but but our program is benefiting a lot from the merger. We really see a lot of new doors opening up, and so it's a very exciting and opportunistic time for us. Oh, well, great um. We're excited about where we're going now. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see some changes. We're still going to be who we have always been. Um, it's fifty years of teaching architects. yeah, and um, it's and a strong that legacy. yeah um, but what's what's available and and the opportunities that are coming now are are something that is very, very exciting for us.
1: Yeah, well, that'd be great. I mean, it's such a good school mm-hmm. and it deserves so much more. Attention than I think it gets in the broader uh,
0: public. Certainly, their their graduates get a lot of attention in the architectural world. Yeah, and certainly regionally. I think I think Kennesaw provides us with a platform that is more global. Yeah, Um, Yeah. and that's very exciting. Yeah, that'll be great. Very exciting.
1: So yeah, thanks again for your time. Thank you. It's been great.